The sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 9, verse 13 to 35. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have um, been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt, from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all um, the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he built not let people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Thus says the Lord. 
Friends, let's pray one more time before we continue in our sermon. Father, cause our hearts to not be hard like Pharaoh's, and the softening of it can only be done by your gracious work. So we beg you today, more than a clear sermon even, and more than anything else, a soft heart that can receive your word as it is preached. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So friends, welcome again to Covenant City Church. Um, if you came in late, my name is Tazar. I'm one of the elders here. would love to meet you after the service if this is your first time here and have any questions about CCC. And as you know, we are still in the series of Moses. We're probably going to go all the way to Exodus 20. And we're almost done right now with the plagues. Today, as we just read, we're in plague number seven. And that's all we're going to cover today. Just that one plague, plague number seven. Because as we read, it's a really long plague right? It's actually 22 verses, and out of the 10 plagues, it's the longest one. There's a reason why it's the longest one, because from here on out, God is about to up the intensity. And you see that in verse 14. God actually says to Pharaoh, for this time, I will send all my plagues on yourself. The literal translation of verse 14 is a bit more intense. God is saying this, from here on out, I will send all of my might to your heart. See, there's a progression with the plagues. And it's interesting, if you've been with us, you, you probably maybe noticed it. Remember plagues number one and two, when God brought it about Egypt, the Egyptians were hit, but Pharaoh's magicians, they were able to copy and defend themselves. They were able to copy God's plagues. Remember that? With the Nile and with the frogs, right? But then in plagues number three to five, Pharaoh's magicians were no longer able to copy the plagues. But yet the plagues didn't actually hit or affect them directly yet. And then last week in plague number six with the skin boils, remember? The magicians were finally themselves affected by the plague. And they said now they were no longer able to stand. So the picture here is of a three-tier circle. The everyday Egyptian out in the outer layer, Pharaoh's magician in the second layer, and Pharaoh himself in the epicenter of the circle. And there's a progression from plague number one to plague number six. First, it hits the everyday Egyptian. And then it hits Pharaoh's magicians. And then now, finally, in plague number seven, God declares, I will this time send all my plagues on you yourself, closing in on the epicenter of the problem of evil, which is Pharaoh. Okay. So why did I take the time to explain all that? At first, to us, that may seem like irrelevant Bible knowledge, right? But think about what I just explained a little bit closer. I think it's actually related to a question that many of you and I uh, ask as well today on a daily basis. What question is that? Well, the question of why didn't God just hit Pharaoh from the beginning? Right? If God truly exists, and if God is all-powerful, then why prolong the evil in this world? Right? You see the sufferings out there in the world... You see the sufferings you experience in your community. You see the sufferings in your own life. And you, don't you often wonder, why not just attack the center of the problem right away? Why not just wipe it all out, God? Why prolong Israel's pain? Why prolong my pain? What's the point of pacing out the narrative like this and prolonging the problem of evil? Well, there's multiple reasons. <clears throat> And this passage doesn't cover all of them, but it does give us a few reasons of why God prolongs his judgment upon the sinful world. There's three things I want to point out. First, God's glory story. 
Two, Moses' recreation. And three, true and fake obedience. God's glory story, Moses' recreation, true and fake obedience. All right, point one, God's glory story. So why not just destroy Pharaoh? In one blow, could God have done that? Of course he could have. Look at verse 15. For by now, I could have put out my hand, God says, and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Well, okay, so why not just do that, God? Wouldn't that be more efficient? Well, we see the answer in verse 16. God said, but for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, God is saying, I could have finished you off with a flick of my wrist but I didn't. I purposefully and intentionally raised you up and paced your defeat in such a way so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. So imagine here a world champion boxer who waits patiently on the sidelines, allowing his challenger to build up his reputation. In fact, he even organizes his challenger's fights himself allows his challenger to shine on center stage, organizes things in such a way that the challenger gets a lot of big matches and prime TV time to build up his reputation and fame. And when his challenger finally reaches the heights of world renown, then and only then does the world champion step into the ring and defeats him. I raised you up, Pharaoh, so that my name may be proclaimed. Why? Why did the champion wait that long? Why defeat the challenger only when he's reached world fame and gained unbelievable strength to show the world his own strength? Friends, Pharaoh was known throughout the ancient world. God's allowed him to stack up for himself unbelievable military power, unbelievable wealth. Pharaoh's on, been on center stage for years as the most powerful man alive, and God is saying here, I let him do that actually personally raised him up myself. Why? To show, as verse 16 literally translates to, my vigor to all the earth. But God shows his power not only in defeating Pharaoh in a world-renowned stage, he also does that by dramatically and slowly pacing the road to victory. Right? Remember the battle progresses? God slowly picks apart all of Egypt's false gods. Remember, that's the whole point of these plagues, right? As he closes in on Pharaoh himself. It's like rounds of a fight. Okay, round one, God against Happy. Remember that? The false god of the Nile who Egypt worshipped, who he, Egypt thought that this happy false god is the one that caused the Nile to flood and therefore watered the agriculture and, and gave them food. What did God do in plague number one? Make the water of the Nile turn into water. Round one, God beats Happy. Round two, Egypt had another false god named Hecate, who they believe is a frog goddess, okay? She has a frog head, and Hecate, they believe, is responsible for the birthing of the children in Egypt. So therefore, Hecate is also responsible for the military might of Egypt. What did God do in plague number two? God used frogs to attack Egypt. Round two, God wins. Round three, Hathor, the cow goddess. What did God do in plague number five? Took away all the cows. Round three, God wins. Now, plague number seven, God fights Seth. Seth is the false god Egypt believes controls the weather. God here in plague number seven is toying with the weather. He's saying, I win this round as well, as he slowly closes in to Pharaoh. See, he paces the victory in a very dramatic way. I don't know who did this, but if it's you, then props to you because it was pretty funny. 
Somebody, one of the volunteers at our church, wrote a note on the lost and found box that says, I was lost, but now I'm found. (laughs) And I've observed various people who opens that box and finds something that they once lost. All of them goes through a somewhat glorious experience, right? Because something that was theirs that was lost is now found. However, wouldn't you agree that the value of the item lost, the duration of how long it was lost for, the struggle story of what it took for that person to recover it, wouldn't you agree that all those details add up to the magnitude of glory experience when that particular item is found again? For example, if I lost a 10,000 rupiah pen, which is less than a dollar, okay? And then 50 minutes later, I'm just kind of strolling by, and I just happen to come across the lost and found box, and oh, you know, I found it there. I'd be happy, sure, but not all that excited about it, right? The experience wouldn't have been all that glorious. Why? Because the value of the thing lost wasn't that great, and the trouble I went through to find it wasn't that hard, and the extent of time it took for me to find it again wasn't that long. But see, if I lost, say, my laptop, which I almost did a month ago, okay? Something much more valuable than the pen. And say, I went through hell and back to find it, right? I called all the restaurants in the mall. You know, is it there? Did I leave it there? Did I go here? And I traced my steps back. You know, did, I, did it fall here? Did it fall there? And for three days, I kept looking and looking and looking. And finally, after three days of painful, exhaustive, patient, long-suffering and enduring search, finally, I found it in the lost and found box, right? You know, that buildup, the duration of time I endured to find the lost object, the value of the object lost, the struggle I went through to find it, all of those details add up to when I do find my laptop again, there's a degree of glory that I would not have experienced with the lost pen. You see? Now, Remember what God describes Israel as, his children. So now, what if I lost my children? What would I be willing to go through to find them? How long of a time would I patiently endure to find them? What would I be willing to long suffer through? What would I sacrifice? Everything. Because they're my children. They're unbelievably valuable to me. And when I do find them again, you know, much more than the pen, much more than my laptop, there'd be no human words adequate enough to describe that glorious moment of reunion for both parties. If God could end it all now, we ask, why doesn't he? Why is he writing the story in this particular way? Why is the amount of time he's taking to reach the climactic resolution done in this particular length? You know, the value of the thing lost. Why is the story like that? The sin he's forbearing and allowing to run rampant during it. The evil he's willing to endure to recover it. The enemies he's willing to fight to find it. Why write it like that? Because friends, all those details add up to a more glorious story worthy of who he is. So Christian, why do you and I endure God's timing and pace? Why long suffer and ride out the groanings of this evil world that God has the power to take away but yet decides not to? 
Why do that? Why persevere this long? Because your king is worth whatever glory story he desires for himself. That's why we endure it. And look, it's not like all God does is force us to endure it, okay? Although he would have had all the right to do so. No, no. He's much more gracious than that. Second point, Moses' recreation. Now let me ask you, God's intentional decision to prolong the defeat of evil in our world today, personified by Pharaoh there in, in Israel's world back then, okay? The fact that God allows you to go through what you go through and is not taking it away, although he can, does it arouse anxiety in us? Of course it does. Does it bring about fear in our lives? Of course it does. Does it make our lives harder? Absolutely. Just like it made Israel's life harder. And you know, it's kind of upsetting, isn't it? God's asking us to endure sufferings of this evil world and slowly crumble apart just so that he can build up this glory story for himself. So what? So he can show off? That's kind of upsetting, right? But that's not exactly how it is. What we see here in verses 22 to 26 is that in this period of waiting, in this period of suffering, God did not cause Mo Moses to crumble, but rather slowly renewed him. Look at verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Now, we've seen this, this theme a few plagues ago, uh, but it comes up again here of Moses's growth and, and maturity. Okay, remember how Moses first acted when God first called him in uh, the unburning bush, right? Exodus chapter 3, okay? God asked Moses to confront Pharaoh, and Moses, what did he do? He just straight up said no to God four times. See, Moses, at first, was a disobedient man. He was a rebel against God's kingship and God's word. In the beginning, virtually, there was nothing different between Moses and Pharaoh. They were both disobeyers of God's word, kings of their own lives. Which, by the way, this is why Moses or Israel or Egypt or Pharaoh or you and I today, none of us have the right to demand God to hurry up the story. None of us have the right to say, God, come on, quickly end this period of suffering. Why? Because we all started as rebels to God's word. None of us deserve to demand that God ends and finishes the story now because what we actually deserve is much worse. The evil we're enduring now is nothing compared to the judgment and wrath that we actually deserve. At the beginning, nothing, virtually nothing differentiated character-wise Moses from Pharaoh. They're the same. But yet, remember what God said in Exodus chapter 4? In response to Moses' disobedience and fear of confronting Pharaoh, God said, fine, fine, I'll send you Aaron with you to help you out. Now, if you take a closer look in the first three plagues, you can read it again maybe later after this sermon or tomorrow. Guess whose staff, whose wooden staff God used to perform the miracles in the first three miracles? Aaron's staff, not Moses's. But then now you read plague number seven. And for the first time in the plague narrative ever, God used whose staff? Moses's. And God will continue to use Moses' staff in plagues 8, 9, and 10, not mentioning the Red Sea event. 
what's being spoken here, that there's a progression of Moses that you see now here in Exodus chapter 9 in plague number 7. He's totally different than the Moses you saw in Exodus chapter 3 before the plagues. He's a much more faithful person, obeying God's word no matter the consequences. Moses was slowly in the middle of Pharaoh's prolonged period of slavery, being recreated by God. But notice, when did God do this transformation of Moses? Did God wait till Israel was free from slavery to transform Moses? Did God wait till the story was over to transform Moses? Did God wait till evil is defeated to transform Moses? No. He redeemed and renewed Moses while he was under Pharaoh's evil tyranny. God shaped Moses as Moses patiently long-suffered the evil that God could have taken away but has decided not to. Christian, our current sufferings here on this broken celestial ball we call earth, our patient enduring and long-suffering of the evils that God in his sovereign will has allowed and is allowing to continue today, not one ounce of that suffering is in vain. God, through it, is not only building up a glory story for himself, worthy of who he is, but also through it is starting the process of recreation to those people he considers his own. And I mean, every ounce of it God uses. You know, anything from hitting your toenail in a wall, somebody cutting you in line, a cab driver telling you they know where they're going, but actually they don't know where they're going, but they're not going to admit to you they don't know where they're going because they're too embarrassed to do that, and we live in a shame and honor culture, not that that's ever happened to me. <laughs> Sickness, a sore tooth, tension in your family, financial stress, physical sickness, mental sickness, the death of a loved one, all of it. Every single ounce of it, every effect of the fall, all the evils you endure and God is still allowing to go forth today here in this sorry excuse of a planet we have. As you wait his appointed time of deliverance, not one ounce of that pain is wasted. All of it, all of it is meant to renew you, to mold you as Moses here is renewed and molded more and more in the midst of his wait of deliverance. But... The opposite is also true and very scary. For those who are not his people, look at the wording here in verse 25. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in, in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Now, many commentators agree, and I, and I think so as well, that the wording here is very curiously similar to the wording in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, when God first created the world. Okay, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, Describes God saying, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, on the land. Now, what did the hail here in plague number seven specifically strike down? The plants and the trees of the field. Now, on top of that, there's a connection there. On top of that, there are tons of Hebrew words for plant. But the specific word for plant used in Exodus chapter 9 when the hail came is the same exact word used for plant in Genesis chapter 1 verse 11. Contrasting and connecting the creation of the plants in Genesis chapter 1 uh, verse 11 with the decreation of the plants in Exodus chapter 9. Okay, what is God trying to say here? 
that through the sufferings his people experience, Moses' experience, in this time of painful waiting, though it will lead to the recreation and renewal of Moses, of his people, yet the sufferings of those who are not his people, for Egypt, for Pharaoh, the prolonged sufferings experienced here on this broken world instead will lead to their decreation. Just like the plants that God first created and planted in Genesis 1 is now decreated here in Exodus chapter 9. You know, people say, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. I don't know about that sentence. What this passage is saying is that what makes you stronger isn't the pain itself. I've seen many people come in contact with sufferings of this world and they didn't die but definitely didn't make them stronger either. What makes you stronger is not the suffering itself. What makes you stronger is the grace that God has upon you in the midst of your suffering. Moses endured God's prolonged allowance of evil in his world, and it resulted in his recreation, growth, and maturity because of God's grace. Pharaoh in Egypt endured God's prolonged allowance of evil in their world, and it resulted in decreation and their crumbling. This stark comparison is seen again in verses 25, 26. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field, the decreation theme, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. You see the picture being painted here? Everyone, both those who are God's people and those who are not. Everyone, Egypt with the hail, Moses with Pharaoh's prolonged slavery, Christian, non-Christian, everyone who is experiencing the groanings of this, this evil world, everyone is enduring suffering until God's appointed time. The whole earth is groaning with pains of childbirth, Romans 8 says, because God has subjected it that way. Everyone is groaning. You don't have to be Christian to acknowledge that. You don't. All you got to be is realistic and honest. Okay. Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, not a Christian, by the way, says this in one of his books. People often get basic psychological questions backwards. Why do people take drugs? That's not a mystery. It's why they don't take them. That's the mystery. Why do people suffer from anxiety? That's not a mystery. How is it that people can ever be calm? <laughs> That's the mystery. We're breakable and mortal. A million things can go wrong in a million ways. We should be terrified out of our skulls at every second. <laughs> Everyone is groaning because God has subjected everything to futility, awaiting eagerly for his time of redemption. Yet for his people, this period of painful waiting will be a journey marked by recreation and renewal, not of decreation and demise. Friends, a Christian, a Christian is not somebody who doesn't feel anxiety. Can the church just be done with that concept? Let's just get over that. A Christian is not somebody who doesn't feel fear. A Christian is not somebody who doesn't feel depression. A Christian is not somebody who doesn't feel sadness. A Christian is not somebody who doesn't feel the groanings of this broken world. Some of the greatest fathers of the faith, the greatest hymn writers, Christian poets, they all struggled with heavy depression. To not feel the groanings of this broken world does not make you more spiritual. 
makes you a liar. A Christian is not someone who doesn't experience those things. A Christian is someone who experiences God's renewing grace in their hearts in the midst of those things. That's the Christian. To those whom God has mercy toward, the fires of this world will lead to their recreation and eventual deliverance. But to those whom God decides to deal justly with, the fires of this world will lead. And fairly so, by the way, for all have sinned, right? God owes no one salvation. God owes Moses no salvation. God does not owe Israel salvation. God owes no one salvation. So for those whom God decides to deal justly and fairly with, the fires of this world will fairly lead to their decreation and demise. But, but that's not what I see, we might say, in the world today. All I see today is people disobeying God's word daily, like Pharaoh. You know, all I see is people today unashamedly gaining power, gaining riches, gaining world-renowned fame like Pharaoh, experiencing happiness because of their sinful ways. Friends, the cattle too experiences happiness when they're being fattened up before the slaughter. Beware, God fattened Pharaoh up. God raised him up and placed him in a world-class arena. Why? So that eventually God can display his power and justice to the world in full flat screen ultra HD TV. The big question for us then is that how can we know if we are one of his people whose sufferings God will use for our recreation and not for our decreation? That's our last point. Moses' recreation proven by his true obedience. What you see in Moses' life is true repentance, true obedience, which is what the mark of someone who's being progressively recreated. But now look at Pharaoh. He seems to be repenting as well, doesn't he? But it's not actual repentance. Look at verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Wow, you know? Okay, Pharaoh seems like he's starting to get it, right? He's starting to repent. But you skip down, uh, down to verse 33. After Moses pleaded to the Lord and stretched out his hand and stopped the hail, what happened to Pharaoh in verse 34? He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Now, this sheds a light to Pharaoh's seeming repentance in verse 27 and 28 that we just read. It wasn't real. It wasn't real. And also sheds light to the servants of Pharaoh, who, if you go back to verse 20, seemingly feared the Lord, right? They went and, and obeyed God's word and hid under the Israelites' house. That wasn't true repentance either, because he and his servants hardened their heart and sinned again. What a word of warning. For all of us here, look at Pharaoh. Oh my, he sounded very biblical, didn't he? Verse 27, I have sinned. Sin, that's a, that's a fancy Bible word you use there, buddy. You know? And not only that, he showed an understanding of what that doctrine meant. Look at the middle of verse 27. The Lord is right and I am wrong. That's a pretty accurate definition of sin. And he confesses his sin publicly. Not only does he know what it means and admits it in a public setting, 
he actually felt an emotional response attached to it. Look at verse 28. Plead with the Lord. Pleading, begging for mercy. That's an emotional response. And then he asks a mediator to do it for him. He he asks Moses to plead with God on his behalf. Oh my goodness, he's really starting to get it. You know, that's the right pathway to God, right? Through God's appointed mediator. But then it keeps going. He then makes a public announcement from here on out to obey God's word. Look at the end of verse 28. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. That's an obedience to God's word of letting Israelites go. Wow. You know what Pharaoh did here? Pharaoh just said, I do, to all the CCC vows. That's pretty crazy, huh? Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and have no hope except through his sovereign mercy? Said, I do. Do you believe in God's mediator and do you trust him alone for salvation? He said, I do. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance that you will endeavor to live as a follower of God? He said, I do. Members, did we not all say these words? Did you all not say, I do? If Pharaoh, in this stage of desperation, came to our membership class, he probably would have said yes and been a member. But apparently, none of it was real. You know why? You know what the litmus test is? Actual obedience. Pharaoh never actually obeyed God's word. Right after the period of desperation ended, he didn't let God's people go. Do you feel a sense of remorse over your sin? Do you find yourself making commitments? Never again will I do this. Do you experience a deep desire for change and obey? Good. But if your life never actually progresses toward actual obedience, I'm not saying you've got to repent of all of your sins day one, but if after a period of time you see absolutely no progress whatsoever in your actual obedience to God's word, no progression of your action is actually matching your confession, then it may be wise to take a second to pause and ask ourselves, am I really one of his? Or is my heart this whole time actually still hard toward God? We do that, don't we? We replace actual obedience with emotional remorse, verbal confessions, prayers of mercy, public acknowledgement of wrong, and promises of future obedience, but never actually obey. Where are you right now? What does James 2.18 say? I will show you my faith by my works. Not meaning he's saved by his works. No, no, no. He's saved by Christ through faith alone. But as Martin Luther says, the faith that truly saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by and will always produce actual obedience to God and his word. Where are you right now? So both Moses and Pharaoh started off as disobeyers of God's word. But here in Exodus chapter 9, Moses increasingly became an obeyer of God's word, and Pharaoh never did. Why? Let's work backwards here. Because God used the suffering that Moses experienced for his recreation, and yet used the suffering Pharaoh experienced for his decreation. 
But let's keep moving backwards here. Why? Why did God use Moses' suffering for his recreation and Pharaoh's suffering for his decreation? Was Moses any better than Pharaoh? No. We just saw over and over again, they both started off as disobeyers of God's word. Not one of them deserves any better. So then how can God give Moses this kind of gracious special treatment and yet give Pharaoh this ungracious treatment? Where did God's wrath and judgment for Moses go? Well, we'll see in this passage. God took it on himself. Wait, where, where do we see that in the passage? I don't see God taking anyone's sin here. You're right, we don't. But you know what you do see? We see a mediator standing between God and man, pleading with God on behalf of sinful man while stretching his arms out, holding a wooden stick. And because of that, the justice of God's thunder and hail was calmed. That's what Moses did here. What did Jesus do, friends, for us? He is, the New Testament says, our true, what? Mediator. Our true deliverer. The one who truly pleads on our behalf to God. But yet, to calm God's wrath that we deserve, he didn't stretch out his arms holding a wooden stick. He stretched out his arms as they were nailed to a wooden cross. And what does he do on that cross? He pleads to God on your behalf. He says, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgive them. Take out all the wrath they deserve upon me. And now, God's justice and wrath that we deserve has ended. The, ale, the hail and the storm is gone. I've shared this story before, but it seems appropriate to share again here in this sermon because of the particular plague. But I heard another pastor tell the story. He lived in the U.S., and often, as you might know, particular parts in the U.S. gets really cold, so the rain would freeze up, and hail would occur, actual hail. Okay, nothing like what we see here. Much smaller, but damaging nonetheless. Okay, car windows can get broken. Roof tops can be destroyed. And one day, it hailed pretty hard, and after the hail ended, the pastor went out to see the damage in his backyard, around his house. And he saw a bird's nest on a tree. And on the bird's nest, he said he saw a dead bird. And he said to himself, you know, that's sad. A bird died because of the hail. But then he wondered and asked himself, why didn't the bird just fly away? You know, why didn't the bird just take shelter elsewhere? He could have. Why stay at its nest? Well, his kids were there at the time, and they were all sad because there's a dead bird, and they wanted him to bury the bird. So he, he took the bird off the nest, and lo and behold, to his surprise, under this dead bird, there are four baby birds chirping away, alive and well. And it dawned on him that the reason why this bird didn't fly away to take shelter is because she was protecting her children from the hail. Friends, why did the hail in verse 26 not hit Israel? Because God remained on that cross and stretched his arms out and died that you may live. 
how can God graciously use the sufferings of this fallen world for your recreation? Because God placed himself under the worst evil of all and was crushed for our sins. See, the pace of the story, the evil God's willing to endure, the battle God's willing to fight, the sacrifice he's willing to pay, the value, oh my, the value of the object lost. It all adds up to the glory of his story. Why, Christian, do you remain obedient to God's word? Why, Christian, do you endure the sufferings of this evil world that God could take away but has decided to not yet redeem? Because look at what your God did for you on that cross. He is worthy. The glory you'll be a part of at the end of the story will overshadow the current sufferings you now endure. It's Sunday, September 22nd, 2019. Evil still persists in this fallen world. Suffering is still plenty in your lives. And God has decided to not yet redeem it because the story, as of today, has not yet reached God's desired climax. It's not our business to know when. It's our business to remain obedient and endure it as we're being renewed because the lamb that was slain is worthy of all honor and deserves whatever glorious narrative he deems worthy of himself. We let him decide that and thankfully also purposed graciously for our good. That's why we endure this evil persistent world obediently to his word. My wife shared to me her favorite poem yesterday and we'll end with this. Let me, let me read it to you all. It's by Emily Dickens. She says, I shall know why when time is over and I've ceased to wonder why Christ will explain each separate anguish in the fair schoolroom of the sky. He will tell me what Peter promised, and I, for wonder at his woe, I shall forget every drop of anguish that scalds me now, that scalds me now. Let's pray. Father, the amount of suffering and evil that scalds us now that's called me now, is innumerable. It's too many to count. And for some reason, you have not yet redeemed all of creation for yourself. For some reason, you're still allowing evil to persist, though you could have taken it away with a flick of your wrist. Why? For your own glory. And we thank you, Father, that though we deserve judgment and wrath, and we deserve a million times worse than what we're experiencing now, Yet you did not leave us to our own demise. Not only that, but you died for us on a cross. You spread your wings, sheltered us, took the hail and justice of God's thunder and wrath upon yourself so that we may live. You drank the fullness of pain and wrath so that we can sit in the midst of our pain, sipping the coming joy knowing that in you we are protected. And though the world is groaning, we are renewed, not because we deserve it, but because you have come down and taken all of our sins upon yourself. You indeed 
are worthy of whatever glory story you want for yourself. Help us endure it obediently until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.